Silence of the Lambs would be a terrible tale of transformation. <laughs> yeah. This is a great one. <laughs> Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. In 1828, Jim Bowie left behind his controversial life in Louisiana to start again in Texas, hoping to find his fortune. He found adventure and prosperity, but heartbreak as well. More importantly, he continued his journey toward his ultimate fate and fame at the Alamo. This week, we continue our look at the life and death of adventurer, rogue, and Texas icon, Jim Bowie. But first, what dangerous thing would you least like to encounter on the Texas Gulf Coast? I'm going to say the jellyfish. You mean the cauliflower jellyfish or the Portuguese man o' which is technically not a jellyfish? I don't know. Whatever it is that if you get sting, you gotta, got somebody's got to pee on you, that's what I don't want. No, it's Texas. They all sting you. Okay, well then, any of those things. Well, for me, I will say that it's annoying to have to shuffle your feet in and out of the surf. So I'm going to say the stingray. The noble stingery. The noble stingery. <laughs> the noble stingery. Um, well, I'm going to say that I would least like to encounter the tarballs that frequently wash up on the beach. I suppose that, Those will kill you long term. I suppose it might be carcinogenic in the long, long view. As he recovered from the terrible wounds that he bore in the famous sandbar fight of 1827, Jim Bowie must have surveyed his life and wondered, what next? For the previous decade, he'd made money through various schemes, both legal and illegal. On paper, he was a very wealthy man with thousands of acres of land throughout Louisiana and Arkansas, but much of that land, as well as the thousands of acres he'd sold to others, was under a cloud of suspicion. Federal court cases over the next few years would show that he and his brother Reason had forged titles on hundreds of land deals. What's more, he was deeply in debt to various banks throughout the South. His participation in the sandbar fight, as well as other feuds and scrapes, both enhanced but also diminished his reputation, making him a risky investment in the current establishment. What he needed was a fresh start, and Texas seemed like the right place to get it. It's not surprising that Texas called to Bowie. He and his brother had been there many times before. Reason served in the ill-fated Gutierrez-McGee filibuster effort in 1813, and Jim participated in Dr. James Long's first invasion in 1819. They also made many trips into Texas illegally, when they smuggled slaves into the U.S. with the pirate Jean Lafitte. Bowie only lived 50 or so miles from the border, and is believed to have made numerous trips there for various reasons. This time, though, it is very clear what drew Bowie to Texas. It was the same thing that drew just about every Anglo there to begin with. Land. Thousands and thousands of acres of land ripe for the taking. Since shortly after independence, the new government of Mexico had encouraged Anglo settlement of Texas. Stephen F. Austin's famous colony had been there since the early 1820s. Bowie visited Texas in early 1828, traveling first to Nacogdoches and then to San Antonio de Bejar, where he began befriending various important citizens in town, including the Navarro family as well as the mayor, Juan de Veramendi. He was baptized into the Roman Catholic faith on April 28, 1828, probably not so much as a genuine conversion, but because immigration was restricted to Catholics. He traveled back and forth between Texas and Louisiana, selling properties and taking out loans in order to finance his plans in Texas. It was during this time that his fiancée, Cecilia Wells, died of pneumonia in September 1829, only two weeks before their intended wedding. This seems to be the last real tie keeping him in Louisiana. On January 1st, 1830, 
Jim Bowie entered Texas with the intention of becoming a citizen of Mexico. He traveled to Nacogdoches again, and then to San Felipe on the Brazos, where he presented himself to Stephen F. Austin. On February 20th, Bowie took the oath of loyalty to Mexico and soon traveled to San Antonio, where he resumed his acquaintance with Veramendi and the other major families of old Bejar, among them the Navarros and the Seguins. Bowie was always the type to make friends easily, and he certainly seemed to have the most remarkable credentials of any of the Anglo newcomers. Veramendi and young Juan Seguin became fast friends with Jim, but more importantly, Veramendi's beautiful 17-year-old daughter, Ursula, became smitten with the dashing newcomer. Bowie was on a mission, though, and love wasn't at the top of his agenda just yet. He headed to Saltillo, the capital of Cohia y Texas, to tap into some of that open land that drew him to Texas in the first place. In 1828, the Mexican government passed a law that offered citizens the right to buy 11 league grants in Texas for between $100 and $250. 11 leagues is about 4,400 acres, and in today's money, $100 would be around $2,000, which is still a ridiculously good bargain. Bowie was always one to find himself a good land scheme, and he managed to befriend enough citizens in Saltillo who would exercise their rights to the grants and then sell them to him. Bowie returned to Texas with grants equaling nearly 700,000 acres of land, which he intended to sell to speculators back east. Stephen F. Austin, responsible for validating all the land claims in Texas, at first was irritated with the scheme, but in the end, he validated Bowie's claims. 700,000 is a lot of acres. Yeah. That's a bunch. 50 cents an acre. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> Armed with vast tracts of land in Texas, Bowie returned to San Antonio and presented the very image of a wealthy land baron. He cultivated his friendship with Veramendi, who became vice governor of the province, and he convinced him to get into the textile business in Cahuilla. He also convinced Reason to come to Texas to join him. Finally, and most importantly, he began courting Ursula. Veramendi agreed to give his daughter's hand to Bowie and set a dowry of 15,000 pesos, which is about $300,000 today. Bowie claimed a net worth of $225,000, mostly in land in the U.S., besides his grants in Texas. In today's money, he would have been a millionaire on paper. The truth of the matter, though, was that the validity of almost all of the land at that very moment was being challenged in a court in Arkansas and would be eventually invalidated as fraudulent. He was also deeply in debt and in fact would shortly default on all of his loans in Louisiana and Arkansas. Even his part in the mill in Coia was bought with a $20,000 loan from a friend. But all of that wasn't immediately clear in Texas. On April 25, 1831, he married Ursula in San Antonio. They went to New Orleans and Natchez for their honeymoon, paid for with money borrowed from his wife's family. Still, while it may seem that he had married for money and influence, Nearly every account seems to indicate that he really did love the beautiful young woman from Bayar, and they settled in a house near the old mission San Jose for a while, before moving into Veramende Palace with Ursula's parents. Apparently, Bowie spent very little time at home. He became fascinated with the local legend about a lost silver mine said to be west of San Antonio near the ruins of the San Saba mission, which was destroyed in 1758 by Comanche Indians. There really was an exploratory mine established near the mission, but its yields were inconclusive and garbled in the passage of time. Attempts over the years to find the mine had never been successful, which added to the legend. The biggest problem with finding the mine was that it was in an area where Camancheria and Apache territory overlapped, and neither tribe was particularly welcoming to outsiders. Still, Bowie was undeterred and determined to find this mine. 
He convinced his father-in-law to give him permission to mount an expedition and even to fund it. He gathered a group of ten men, including his brother Reason, and they set off into the hill country on November 2, 1831. They traveled for several days and actually encountered Comanche on the way. This band was friendly, though, and provided them with food and information about the territory. However, about six miles from the reported location of the mine, they realized that they were being followed by another band of Indians, probably Lipan Apache or Tawakini. Jim and Reason rode out to parley with the Indians, but their efforts failed, and the Indians soon attacked Bowie's party. For the next 13 hours, Bowie's men hid behind rocks and fought the Indians. According to legend, only one of Bowie's men was killed, while they killed between 30 and 40 of the Indians. This is probably exaggerated, but what is true is that most of Bowie's men lived, though many were wounded. They lost all their horses and had to begin walking back to San Antonio. In the meantime, the Comanche band that they had met earlier reported to traders in San Antonio that Bowie's party was attacked and were surely dead. Everyone believed the Comanche, and Ursula began mourning. But on December 2nd, the entire town was amazed to see Bowie and his eight companions walk into San Antonio. They had walked over 150 miles, most of them wounded through hostile territory. Bowie's initial report to Mexican officials further added to his reputation, as did the account which Reason later published when he returned to the U.S. Two months later, Bowie recruited an even bigger party and went back out to find the lost mine. They weren't attacked again, but they failed to find anything. In fact, to this day, the fabled silver mine has never been found because it most likely simply does not exist. The Texas hill country around Maynard is almost entirely composed of non-mineral-bearing limestone. It's simply one more part of Jim Bowie's legend. 1832 would be the high point of Bowie's life so far. Despite the failure of the expedition to San Saba and his misguided get-rich-quick schemes, Bowie was the most famous person in Texas, but he was deeply respected by both the Tejano and Anglo communities. In the chaos of the Civil War in Mexico between the centralist dictatorship of Anastasio Bustamante and liberal general Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna, Texans, and especially Anglo-Texans, rose firmly in support of Santa Anna. In July 1832, Bowie cut short a business trip to Natchez to return to Texas when tensions began to rise in Nacogdoches. He was part of the force of Texans who faced off with a force of 100 Mexican cavalry under the command of Bustamante supporter José de la Piedras, and was instrumental in their defeat. The collapse of centralist authority in Texas and other provinces was instrumental in Bustamante's downfall, and the liberal governments of Pedraza and Santa Ana took power in Mexico. Texans breathed a sigh of relief and were sure that things were bound to get better. Sadly, prosperity and happiness would elude Bowie in 1833. A cholera epidemic struck Texas in the late summer. Bowie feared for his family's safety from this deadly disease. There were different accounts of how many children Jim and Ursula had by this point. Bowie and Veramendi tradition holds that he and Ursula had one daughter, Maria, born in 1832, and that Ursula was either pregnant or had just given birth to a son, James. No baptism records for either child have been found in San Antonio or Monclova, so there's really no way of knowing. Whatever the case, that summer Jim sent Ursula in the company of her parents and brother to the estates in Monclova in Cahuilla, while he went to Natchez again on business. While he was there, he caught yellow fever, and indeed in October he was thought to be on death's door, even dictating his last will and testament. He recovered, though, and returned to Texas in November. Sadly, waiting for him in San Antonio was news that cholera had reached Monclova in early September. In less than a week, the disease killed Ursula, their children, her brother, and both of her parents. Jim Bowie's entire world was utterly destroyed. It is said that from that time on, 
he began drinking heavily and never really stopped. Very little is known about his life during this period, until 1834 when he returned to land speculation. He was appointed commissioner charged with encouraging immigration into Texas from the U.S., and helped land speculator James T. Mason purchase 400 leagues of land, which he then brokered to friends in Natchez. There was some question about the ethics and legality of this deal, but in the end it was a moot point when Santa Ana reversed his liberal policy on immigration into Texas in May of 1835. The tension between Anglo settlements in Texas and the central government in Mexico once again flared up and Santa Ana ordered the arrest of all Anglos in Coahuila's capital city. Bowie just barely escaped from Monclova and returned to the Anglo settlements in Texas. Jim Bowie and Texas were headed towards a confrontation with Mexico, which would see them both meet their ultimate destiny. So once again, Jim Bowie is unkillable. <laughs> well, they Can't be killed by bullets or yellow fever. Or swords. <laughs> or Indians. Or Comanche, or a band of 30 or 40 Comanche well, against a handful of guys. Although, I mean, he only walked about 150 miles. Yeah. Cabeza de Vaca would take issue that that was even a challenge. Yeah. Well. The thing that's, it's like every chapter of his life is something, isn't it? He's, there's an up and a down and an exciting, mm-hmm. and he's, he's even Steven. He gets... He gets up a little bit, but then the land speculation starts up and things fall through. Or he finds a little piece of happiness, and then his whole family dies. Like, right. He just can't ever seem to to hold on to it and, and achieve that level of... He wants success, but he never achieves it. And I think Texas really... It, it became way more home for him and and welcoming of him and the personality that he had than Louisiana had in Arkansas, where he had been before. Although he was raised in those areas, and he was a product of those areas, Texas had just enough of that edge of uncivilization that he really thrived in it, but also he thrived in the area that was the most civilized in Texas. Yeah, well, I mean, we've talked in length about how Texas, especially during this time period, was a place where you could come and reinvent yourself. And people were coming, you know, the Anglos were coming west mm-hmm. from the United States and into Texas to find their fortunes, to remake their lives. And uh, a lot of people were getting away from things that were more or less chasing them from the U.S. Well, that, Jim Boo is no exception there with all of his shady yeah. land deals and debts. But I think, in the, you know, we, we talk about this, well, you come to Texas and reinvent yourself. But at the time... Texas is reinventing itself as well. It wasn't just come here and, and change who you are. It's come here and build something and, mm-hmm. and make this... And be changed by this land. Yeah. So it's a great tale of transformation. You know, Silence of the Lambs would be a terrible tale of transformation. <laughs> yeah. This is a great one. Well, th- it's also interesting to me, the again, the intersections. And, and the fact that Texas, for such a big place, was really a small place in that there was a very small population. So we've talked about the Navarros and the Seguins. They were all related, and the Vermindis were cousins of the Navarros. As a matter of fact, Ursula's mother was a Navarro, and her grandmother was a Navarro, you know, even on her father's side. They were cousins, right. you know. But the point is is that there was a very small community, and Bowie really ingratiated himself into this community, but he was also... Very popular with Austin, the Austin crowd and the and the settlers coming from the Anglo, you know, the Anglo settlers. Jim Bowie is like a guy who walked out of like a mythical Greek, yeah, yeah. well, character, like you know, the guy like 
he did Herculean type of feats of like yeah. these fights with men. And I mean, he must have been a personable, right. charming guy because uh, who was the other guy that Stephen F. Austin thought was a scoundrel? And he was also oh, a land uh, speculator. Uh, Brad, uh, from the, the guy in Edwards. Edwards. Head, yeah, the Edwards, Edwards brothers. You know, he's like, I didn't, you know, he thought Edwards was a scoundrel and hated him and he was shady and look at Jim Bowie and he's like, well, you're involved in all these shady land deals, but I don't care because I like you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I, pretty much. Have you... Get a load of this guy right here. <laughs> Come on. Uh, the interesting thing is that if you, reading some of the accounts of people that knew him, you know, they, they claim that, you know, you think of this, this brash guy that kicks in doors and has these big fights, but apparently he was also described as a very humble man who never bragged about himself and he never swore, never cursed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Jim Dewey, well, I don't know, but I mean, he strikes me as the type that his reputation was such that he didn't need to probably didn't feel the need to prove himself he's right. like he, he is who he is and either you took him at face value or you didn't yeah you know i mean he did stop bullets with a chair <laughs> i just I, and himself <laughs> i i think the the it's it's interesting that he went after this silver mine this mythical silver mine yeah. because he's a guy who can you know leap buildings in a you know in a single bound and walk through fire but he's like Oh well, you know, let's let's go look for that silver mine. You know, yeah. well, and it kind of and strikes, he got sold kind of a he's kind of got sold a little horse story on that one. Yeah, well, it, and it also strikes me as maybe part of the the silver mine thing to me strikes me as you know he's coming to Texas to reinvent himself, and perhaps the silver mine was a way for him to try and make his fortune without having to make shady land deals. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, he was still doing that, but maybe he saw that as a way to you know what I'm gonna go out and. Yeah, it might not be easy to find it. It's going to be hard work, but it's a chance for me to find something legitimate that I can then stake my future on. Yeah, and the thing about the land deals is not so much that he got it, it was that there was suspicion about how he got the deals. He he got them legitimately and it wasn't illegal what he was doing really. It was that what he intended to do with it is everybody knew he was going to sell it to people back east who right. were then going to overcharge settlers coming in. And right. that was kind of what people took a, took issue with. And the same with the deal with uh, Mason. Yeah, where the deal with the the land is supposed to be for people to come and yeah. put their, you know, stake their claim in Texas and make a life there. Right, and then he got it cheap, you know, and then was able to sell it and make money off of it. But 700,000 acres is a... That's an amazing... That's a colossal that's amount like, of land. That's like... Houston. <laughs> no, it's... Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like the DFW Metroplex. How does that compare to the, the King Ranch? Uh, I think the King Ranch is around 560,000 acres or something like that. It's a little bit bigger than what King Ranch is today. Yeah, that's a lot of land. It's sad in this story, we look at at the epic aspects of his life that he, you know, defeats impossible odds and continues to survive and beats not only man, animal, uh, you know, nature and like disease, you know, he just, he's a, he's some kind of survivor, but at there's this incredible personal cost he pays the people around him in his life. Just horrible bad luck, coincidence, however you chalk it up. Losing the fiancé, losing his entire family to cholera. Um, and it's really sad, but there's the, the part of the story where he crawls in a bottle for a while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's one more demon that's going to haunt him for his whole life. I, I feel after this chapter in the story that it's the... End of Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I was going to say that. You beat me to it. Mm, yeah. 
Well, it's you it, know, it's just it's that that downward turning note right before. Except he didn't lose any limbs. Like he just, true, true. But, no, it, but it's, he lost it's, his whole family. In a the, week. the tone he, of the tone of this yeah. part of his life story kind of is the downturn. Where okay, here's all these horrible things that happened. You know, it could very well be the end. You but, know, but with Jim Bowie, it's never the end. Yes, it's never the end. And so we haven't even gotten to the part of the story of the Jim Bowie story that's the most famous part, and that's what's going to be coming in the next time, is The Road to the Alamo. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus with two T's. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.